Chapter Ten of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Eight by John Hay. Chapter Ten: Foreign Relations in 1863. The correspondence between the British and the American governments did not cease with the escape of the Alabama. Mr. Seward and Mr. Adams, throughout the year 1863, kept up a vigorous and persistent reclamation upon the English government, holding them responsible for all the damages consequent upon what they regarded as their neglect to prevent the violation of neutrality involved in the sailing of this corsair from Liverpool. Lord Russell wrote several elaborate dispatches endeavoring to prove that the British government had been guilty of no neglect and was not responsible for any damage committed by the Confederate cruisers. But he never argued the subject at such length as the American statesman. He usually contented himself with brief notes, couched in a tone of constantly increasing resentment and annoyance, disclaiming all responsibility for any acts of the Alabama. And at last, on the 14th of September, saying to Mr. Adams, when the United States government assumed to hold the government of Great Britain responsible for the captures made by vessels which may be fitted out as vessels of war in a foreign port, because such vessels were originally built in a British port, I have to observe that such pretensions are entirely at variance with the principles of international law and with the decisions of American courts of the highest authority, and I have only, in conclusion, to express my hope that you may not be instructed again to put forward claims which her majesty's government cannot admit to be founded on any grounds of law or justice to this mr seward answered on the sixth of october in a dispatch remarkable for its dignity its force and its calm and friendly tone after a terse restatement of the facts in the case and the law applicable to them he said that the united states had insisted and must continue to insist that the British government was justly responsible for the damages which the peaceful, law-abiding citizens of the United States sustained by the depredations of the Alabama. I cannot, therefore, he says, instruct you to refrain from presenting the claims which you have now in your hands of the character indicated. And at the same time, he admits the difficulties and embarrassments under which Her Majesty's government is laboring, and confesses that he does not regard the present hour as one that is entirely favorable to calm and candid examination of either the facts or the principles involved in such cases. He looks forward to a future time for a fuller and more satisfactory discussion of these matters, and directs the American envoy to inform Earl Russell that he must continue to give him notice of these claims as they arise, and to furnish him the evidence upon which they rest, in order to guard against ultimate failure of justice. Lord Russell replied in a similar friendly temper, saying that Her Majesty's government did not contend for the principle of equipping vessels in their ports to cruise against either of the belligerent parties, but said they must decline to be responsible for the acts of parties who fit out a seeming merchant ship, send her to a port, or to waters far from the jurisdiction of British courts, and there commission, equip, and man her as a vessel of war. Her Majesty's government fear, he continued, that if an admitted principle were thus made elastic to suit a particular case, 
the trade of shipbuilding in which our people excel and which is to great numbers of them a source of honest livelihood would be seriously embarrassed and impeded but while this discussion was proceeding the work of fitting out confederate cruisers in british ports went steadily on in april eighteen sixty three a steamer called the japan afterwards known as the georgia left the clyde with the intent to depredate on the commerce of the united states and in the spring of the same year the same firm which had built the florida launched at their yard in liverpool a new gunboat to which the name of alexandra was given it was apparent to the least attentive observer that this was a vessel of war and the evidence was overwhelming that it was intended for the insurgents of the southern states in this case the british government acted promptly and an information was filed by the attorney general on behalf of the queen against the ship and the builders the case came on trial in june and was prosecuted with energy and ability by the attorney general the testimony upon which he relied went to prove that the vessel was constructed for a ship of war that gun carriages and other warlike equipment were being made for her that her builders had declared she was being built for the confederate states and that the persons who contracted for her and supervised her construction were confederate agents yet in spite of this weight of evidence and of the authority of the government which was doubtless exercised in good faith the lord chief baron gave this amazing instruction to the jury if you think the object really was to build a ship in obedience to orders and in compliance with a contract leaving it to those who bought it to make what use they thought fit of it then it appears to me that the foreign enlistment act has not in any degree been broken on which the jury of course returned a verdict for the defendants the case was at once appealed and proceedings followed which were extremely interesting from a legal point of view but without further practical result which need be noticed except that the alexandra never passed into the confederate service mr seward rightly acknowledged the honor and good faith with which the british government had attempted to prevent the fitting out of this vessel to prey on american commerce and said pending the appeal the president is not prepared to believe that the judiciary of great britain will with well-considered judgment render nugatory and void a statute of the realm which with its counterpart in our own legislation has hitherto been regarded by both nations as a guarantee of that mutual forbearance which is so essential to the preservation of peace and friendship if the ruling of the lord chief baron was to stand the inference would be that there was no law in england to prevent the unlimited employment of british capital industry and skill to make war from british ports against the united states undeterred we might rather say encouraged by these proceedings the eminent shipbuilder laird at birkenhead proceeded during the same summer in the construction for the confederates of two ironclad rams more formidable than anything hitherto attempted in england in the middle of july mr adams communicated these facts to lord russell saying a war thus has been practically conducted by a portion of her people against a government with which her majesty is under the most solemn of all national engagements to preserve a lasting and durable peace a month later mr adams wrote again in a tone of the gravest warning giving information of the progress of the work upon these vessels and again on the third of september he sent to the secretary for foreign affairs further depositions showing that they were nearing completion 
and stating that he had been directed to describe the grave nature of the situation in which both countries must be placed in the event of an aggression committed against the government and the people of the united states by either of these formidable vessels the next day he informed the foreign office that one of the rams was preparing to leave the port and on the same day he received a note from lord russell already three days old giving the discouraging and alarming answer that her majesty's government are advised that they cannot interfere in any way with these vessels mr adams at once replied expressing his profound regret at this conclusion and added in words of solemn warning which are rarely heard except on the eve of actual hostilities it would be superfluous in me to point out to your lordship that this is war but on the eighth of september he received a note announcing a determination which saved europe and america from incalculable evils that instructions had been issued which would prevent the departure of the two ironclad vessels from liverpool the government finally bought them and they were taken into the royal navy under the names of the scorpion and the wyvern it is difficult looking back over the lapse of a score of years after all these controversies have been peacefully and happily settled and the two great nations have been united in a friendship stronger and more durable than ever to appreciate all the causes of such action on the part of the british government during the summer of eighteen sixty three their disinclination to perform fully and with a cordial spirit their obligations towards the government of the united states received some explanation from the utterances of prominent british statesmen in parliament and on the hustlings during the year it was not only the consideration alluded to in lord russell's dispatch quoted above that it was to the advantage of british trade and british commerce to observe a strict neutrality which led them to the course they pursued the attitude ascribed to the british government by mr roland jacquemin of the judge in the fable who gives a shell to each of the parties in the suit reserving the oyster for himself preserving strict neutrality but fattening himself at the expense of both parties does less than justice to the intentions of the statesmen of great britain the one fact which we must keep constantly in view is that they disbelieved in the possibility of the restoration of the union and therefore however little they may have sympathized with the purposes of a confederacy founded upon slavery as its cornerstone they were unwilling to place themselves in an attitude of positive hostility to a government which they honestly believed themselves bound to recognize sooner or later as early as the autumn of eighteen sixty one lord russell said in a public speech that the north was fighting for empire and the south for independence that if the south came back to the union the fatal question of slavery would still remain a source of discord and that if the federal government should conquer the south the national prosperity would in this way be destroyed a year later mr gladstone announced from the same platform that jefferson davis and the southern leaders had made a nation that the success of the southern states so far as regards their separation from the north was as certain as any event yet future and contingent could be and in february eighteen sixty three lord russell said from his place in the house of lords that the subjugation of the south by the north would prove a calamity to the united states and to the world and especially calamitous to the negro race in those countries on the thirtieth of june in the same year 
only three days before the crowning victories of gettysburg and vicksburg mr gladstone said we do not believe that the restoration of the american union by force is attainable and added that he did not believe a more fatal error was ever committed than when men of high intelligence came to the conclusion that the emancipation of the negro race was to be sought although they could only travel to it by a sea of blood during the same debate lord palmerston took john bright to task for indulging in what he considered an absurd and fantastical idea that the union was still in existence that there were not in america two belligerent parties but a legitimate government and a rebellion against that government not until the final catastrophe came did the most intelligent and far-seeing british statesmen even among those who were at heart friendly to the united states admit the possibility of the complete triumph of the national arms among the leaders of the conservative party in england there was no concealment of their intense hostility to the national cause one spoke with exultation of the bursting of the bubble republic another now marquis of salisbury said the people of the south were the natural allies of england as great producers of the articles we needed and great consumers of the articles we supplied the north on the other hand kept an opposition shop in the same department of trade as ourselves after the seizure and sale of the confederate rams in the british ports it became evident to the richmond government that the british isles could no longer be made the base of naval operations and the refusal of the english cabinet to join in the overtures of mediation proposed by napoleon the third destroyed the last hope entertained by the confederates of recognition by england mr davis in his message of the seventh of december indulged in a bitter outbreak of resentment against the british government great britain he said has entertained with that government the united states the closest and most intimate relations while refusing on its demand ordinary amicable intercourse with us and has under arrangements made with the other nations of europe not only denied our just claim of admission into the family of nations but interposed a passive though effectual bar to the acknowledgment of our rights by other powers so soon as it had become apparent he continued that her majesty's government was determined to persist indefinitely in a course of policy which under professions of neutrality had become subservient to the designs of our enemy i felt it my duty to recall the commissioners formally accredited to that court a few months later this feeling of resentment was aroused to absolute fury by a letter which mr davis received from the british legation in washington conveying a communication from lord russell in which a formal protest and remonstrance of her majesty's government was made against the efforts of the authorities of the so-called confederate states to build war vessels within her majesty's dominions to be employed against the government of the united states after consulting with the law officers of the crown said earl russell her majesty's government have come to the decision that agents of the authorities of the so-called confederate states have been engaged in building vessels which would be at least partially equipped for war purposes on leaving the ports of this country that these war vessels would undoubtedly be used against the united states a country with which this government is at peace that this would be a violation of the neutrality laws of the realm and that the government of the united states would have just ground for serious complaint against her majesty's government 
should they permit such an infraction of the amicable relations now subsisting between the two countries the rest of the dispatch was couched in courteous and even kindly terms but this could not compensate for the injurious substance of the communication and what was to mr davis the intolerable outrage of the phrase the so-called confederate states he disdained to make any formal reply but wrote by the hand of his private secretary an angry response saying were indeed her majesty's government sincere in a desire and determination to maintain neutrality the president could not but feel that it would neither be just nor gallant to allow the subjugation of a nation like the confederate states by such a barbarous despotic race as are now attempting it as the three parties concerned belong to precisely the same race mr davis's furious epithets must have seemed to lord russell rather more ludicrous than forcible the letter goes on to say in an equal confusion of facts and of grammar as for the specious arguments on the subject of the rams advanced by earl russell the president desires me to state that he is content to leave the world and history to pronounce judgment upon this attempt to heap injury upon insult by declaring that her majesty's government and law officers are satisfied of the questions involved while those questions are still before the highest legal tribunal of the kingdom composed of members of the government and the highest law officers of the crown for their decision the president himself will not condescend to notice them mr mason gave up his residence in london with great regret he had grown accustomed to the official neglect with which he was treated and greatly enjoyed the hospitality of those whose sympathies or rather whose animosities were with the south but the orders from richmond were positive so he shut up his legation in seymour street and set off for paris unconsoled by the answer to his letter of farewell in which lord russell said i regret that circumstances have prevented my cultivating your personal acquaintance which in a different state of affairs i should have done with much pleasure and satisfaction mr mason afterwards called himself confederate commissioner on the continent but the title was not satisfying he kept coming furtively back to london continually hoping for an invitation to plead his cause in an unofficial manner before some member of the government at last through the intervention of w s lindsay m p he obtained an interview with lord palmerston this long-desired privilege put him in the highest spirits he could not have talked with more vigour and enjoyment if he had been in the smoking-room of the senate he talked only too much and too well lord palmerston's proceeding was cruelly socratic he confined himself to questions and the answers came in a flood mr mason told him the war would end with this campaign that the north could not replenish its armies enlistments had ceased and they dared not draft in reply to palmerston's innocent inquiry what they would do with washington after they had captured it he replied that it would be destroyed not vindictively but to keep the enemy at a distance the defeat of grant and of sherman which he assumed as a matter of course would be followed by anarchy in the north which would probably prevent any election from being held if held lincoln would be defeated now then was the time for europe to intervene and insist upon peace the north itself would look upon such action as a godsend the government would be powerless before the masses insisting on a peace i thought both he and i said mr mason 
could form a safe opinion as to the probable effect of such interposition when we looked at the broken and disintegrated condition of the north broken into factions its finances in ruins and unable to replenish its army lord palmerston replied that since mr mason was of the opinion that the crisis was at hand it might be better to wait until it had arrived he had to be content with the true humorist's appreciation of his own joke for mr mason saw no jibe in the grave words but reported them complacently to richmond expressing the hope that good might come of the interview there was a marked difference in our relations with the power on either side of the channel while an air of recrimination and almost of menace pervaded our correspondence with england while the public speakers in that country and in this indulged in the bitterest taunts and reproaches a tone of superficial friendliness characterized all our intercourse with the court of the tuileries and hardly an expression except those of commonplace amity can be found in the utterances of the public speakers of the united states and france in regard to each other but as a matter of fact the government of the emperor was intensely hostile to the union cause and his smooth phrases of cordial courtesy to our representative served to mask a series of plots equally treacherous and nugatory against the united states the emperor napoleon in his address of the twelfth of january eighteen sixty three to the expiring legislature referred in these words to his efforts and intervention in america i have made the attempt to send beyond the atlantic advices inspired by a sincere sympathy but the great maritime powers not having thought it advisable as yet to act in concert with me i have been obliged to postpone to a more suitable opportunity the offer of mediation the object of which was to stop the effusion of blood and to prevent the exhaustion of a country the future of which cannot be looked on with indifference and in november of the same year a new legislative body having been elected he attempted to defend in one paragraph his much criticized expeditions to the two ends of the world mexico and cochin china how he said would we develop our foreign commerce if on the one side we were to renounce all influence in america and if on the other in the presence of immense territories occupied by the spanish and dutch france alone remained without possessions in the asiatic seas let us then have faith he continued in our enterprises beyond the sea commence to avenge our honor they will terminate in the triumph of our interests and if prejudiced minds do not divine the fruitfulness enclosed in the germs deposited for the future let us not tarnish the glory thus acquired so to speak at the two extremities of the globe at peking and at mexico during the entire year all the official utterances of the emperor were marked with a spirit of constant kindness and friendship toward the government of the united states but the correspondence of the confederate agents in paris tell a singular story of treachery and double dealing on his part lacking as much in sagacity as in candor mr slidell had arrived in france in the earliest part of the preceding year accompanied by the momentary prestige of his capture and release and had at once established close relations with the french ministry and even with the tuileries while no official character was ever accorded him his correspondence is full of reports of the most intimate conversations between him and the successive ministers of foreign affairs and the emperor himself in which it is continually intimated to him that a recognition of the confederacy is only a question of time 
and that may be expected at an early day these reports faithfully transmitted to richmond excited the liveliest hopes in the minds of the confederate leaders of an immediate introduction into the family of european nations and though this feeling of complacency was troubled from time to time by the apprehensions of the emperor's covetous intentions in the directions of texas which were not entirely unfounded still the cabinet at richmond built their strongest hopes upon the benevolent intentions of napoleon the third both mr mason who was alternately basking in the light of social attentions in london and freezing under the studied reserve of the government and mr slidell who was enjoying to the utmost the charm of life in paris as well as the intimate though unofficial converse of its rulers agree in all their correspondence of this year and the next that the french emperor was willing and anxious to recognize the south if he could only induce england to join with him and there is little doubt that these assertions had sufficient foundation though the official denials of both governments were justified by the fact that no formal or written propositions to that effect from france to england were in existence in the autumn of eighteen sixty two Monsieur Thouvenel resigned. The emperor intimated to Mr. Slidell that one cause of the change in the foreign office was Monsieur Thouvenel's lack of zeal on behalf of the South, a reproach which seems hardly just in view of the friendly conversation reported between the outgoing minister and the rebel emissary. On one occasion he had declared to Mr. Slidell that the English denial of the French overtures in favor of the South was a mauvaise plaisanterie that the matter had been seriously discussed between the two nations and had fallen through on account of the unwillingness of the english to act the new minister m duen de hayes was found at first more pliant to the emperor's wishes in that matter the attempt at a joint mediation of the three powers and the final overtures of france alone were discussed between the emperor and mr slidell before they were carried into effect and at an interview at about this time the emperor himself suggested to slidell the building of a confederate navy in europe a suggestion which the rebel envoy said they would gladly avail themselves of if the emperor would only give him some verbal assurance that the police would not watch too closely the armament of the vessels to which mr slidell reports the emperor as making this shameless and almost incredible response why could you not have them built as for the italian government i do not think it would be difficult but i will consult the minister of marine about it the relations thus set foot between the confederate legation and the officers of the french empire continued in a manner which cannot but excite the amazement of any one who reads the letters of slidell to his government it is impossible to regard all these reports as mere mystification certainly in the end to be detected they must therefore be received with the same credit given to the reports of any other minister to his home government mr slidell says he kept in his pay an official in the french ministry of foreign affairs with the knowledge and sanction of monsieur drain de hoys receiving all the information he needed from this person the minister while he talked freely enough with mr slidell preferred to say that the building of the ships was a matter out of his jurisdiction belonging rather to that of the minister of commerce or of marine that it was better that he should know nothing of it and that he was quite willing to close his eyes until some direct appeal was made to him the minister of marine who was less liable to embarrassing inquiries from mr dayton 
was therefore less punctilious in his conversations with mr slidell and unhesitatingly told him that if the confederates built ships of war in french ports they should be permitted to arm and equip them and go to sea mr slidell further says that on the twenty third of february he called by appointment a monsieur Rouer, minister of state a man so powerful in the imperial councils that he was usually called the vice-emperor with monsieur Verrouz, deputy from nantes the express object of the visit being to receive from monsieur Rouer the distinct assurance that if we were to build ships of war in french ports we should be permitted to arm and equip them and proceed to sea this assurance says slidell was given by him and so soon as the success of the erlanger loan is established i shall write to messrs maury and bullock recommending them to come here for the purpose of ascertaining whether they can make satisfactory contracts this erlanger loan the most successful of all the financial operations of the confederates in europe was directly promoted by the emperor in france after the minister of foreign affairs had declined to permit it to be advertised in the paris papers his objections were overcome by the direct command of the emperor considering the reputation which the emperor enjoyed among the public men of europe for his supposed talent of keeping his own counsels he exhibited a surprising recklessness in this affair while giving mr dayton constant assurances of his friendship for the united states he talked with the utmost freedom of his warm sympathy towards the southern cause with confederate envoys with members of parliament and even with casual british tourists who all reported his conversation with the utmost promptitude to mr slidell or directly to mr davis in richmond it was not enough for him to intimate to the rebel envoys that the construction of ships in french ports would be winked at but he took the manufacturers themselves directly into his confidence monsieur armand the eminent shipbuilder of bordeaux went directly to the emperor and received from him the positive assurance which he was authorized to convey to mr slidell that no difficulties would be made in the matter monsieur armand suggested that mr slidell would probably not be satisfied with any assurance he did not receive directly from the emperor and asked if an audience could not be granted him for this purpose mr slidell had already received from the emperor a most gratifying and characteristic proof of his sympathy he sent him by the hands of monsieur mocard his private secretary a copy of a confidential telegraphic dispatch from adams to dayton advising him of the sailing of the confederate steamer japan from england to france the dispatch had been stolen from the wires by the french government and by the emperor himself laid before mr slidell before it was read by mr dayton he naturally felt after this so sure of his standing at the tuileries that captain bullark entered at once into provisional contracts for the building of four corvettes and two ironclads mr slidell obtained his promised interview with the emperor on the eighteenth of june in the course of this conversation mr slidell regarding the matter as arranged expressed his thanks to the emperor for his sanction of the contract made for the building of four ships of war at bordeaux and nantes and informed him that they were now prepared to build several ironclad ships in france and that he only required his verbal assurances that they should be allowed to proceed to sea under the confederate flag to enter into the contracts for that purpose this language is quoted textually from mr slidell's dispatch to richmond as well as what follows from the emperor the latter said that we might build the ships 
but it would be necessary that their destination should be concealed his majesty had evidently taken no offence at the cynicism of the envoy's proposition the definite contracts were then signed and the work on the ships went rapidly forward but it was not only in relation to naval matters that mr slidell kept up his curious intimate relations with the emperor in this same interview on the eighteenth of june the entire subject of the recognition of the confederacy by france either jointly or in company with england was fully discussed between napoleon and slidell the emperor constantly expressing his fear that england desired to embroil him in war with the united states and slidell continually assuring him that with his navy he could conquer a peace in a moment there seems no limit to the indiscretions of both parties mr slidell went so far as to ask the emperor whether he preferred to see the whigs or tories in power in england to which his majesty replied that he rather preferred the whigs the tories are very good friends of mine he said when in the minority but their tone changes very much when they get into power mr slidell showed him a letter from messrs roebuck and lindsay two members of parliament who were ardently devoted to the cause of the south and asked the emperor if he would receive them to which he unhesitatingly assented but after a little reflection added i think that i can do something better make a direct proposition to england for joint recognition this will effectually prevent lord palmerston from misrepresenting my position and wishes on the american question he promised to bring the matter before the cabinet and two days later mr slidell received a confidential letter from monsieur morcard dictated by the emperor saying Monsieur Drun de Huys has written to Baron Gross, our ambassador in London, to sound Lord Palmerston on the question of recognition of the South, and is authorized to declare that the cabinet of the Tuileries is ready to discuss the subject. A few days later, in accordance with the arrangements which Slidell had made, the famous interview of Roebuck and Lindsay with the Emperor took place at Fontainebleau. The emperor talked with these ardent advocates of the South in a tone of inconceivable indiscretion. Roebuck reported the conversation with equal recklessness to Slidell before leaving Paris, and repeated it soon afterwards from his place in the House of Commons, claiming that he was authorized by Napoleon III to state publicly that he was ready to recognize the Confederacy, that he had urged the British government to such action, and that the emperor was chagrined at the discourteous treatment he had received from the british cabinet in not only rejecting his overtures but denying that they had been made and then communicating them to the washington cabinet the british government of course gave a categorical denial to all the assertions of mr roebuck's extraordinary speech and the emperor in his turn coolly joined in giving the lie to the unfortunate amateur diplomatists he sent it is true through monsieur Mocard, a note to mr slidell making an attempt to explain some of the contradictions in this tangled web of falsehood and expressly stating that the morning after the interview with roebuck and lindsay the minister of foreign affairs sent a telegraphic dispatch to baron gros to inform lord palmerston unofficially that if england was disposed to recognize the south the emperor was inclined to follow her in that path a fact which was made public in the moniteur at the same time, Mr. Slidell's agent in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs told him that M. Droyen de la Hoyes had read to him a part of a letter from the Emperor in which, after giving him the instructions above referred to in regard to Baron Gross, the Emperor added, 
I question whether I ought not to say officially to Lord Palmerston that I have decided to recognize the Confederate States. But all these thick-woven cobwebs of intrigue and diplomacy were blown to pieces a few days later, when the thunder of the guns of Gettysburg and Vicksburg came echoing over the ocean. The year went on in alteration of hope and discouragement to Mr. Slidell. He writes on one day with exultation that the Archduke Maximilian is ready to form a treaty of alliance, offensive and defensive with the Southern Confederacy. On another, that the Emperor at a court ball has distinguished him and his family with extraordinary marks of favor. On another, that his ironclads are almost ready for sea. But in November, his suspicions in regard to the good faith of Napoleon III became aroused, and he wrote a note directly to the Emperor, expressing his fear that orders might be given without the Emperor's being consulted, which would interfere with the completion and armament of the ships of war in construction at Bordeaux and Nantes for the government of the Confederate States. The undersigned, he says, has the most entire confidence that Your Majesty, being made aware of the possibility of such an interference, will take the necessary steps to prevent it. The undersigned has no access to the Minister of Marine, and does not feel authorized to state to the Minister of Foreign Affairs the circumstances under which the construction of these ships was commenced. He relies upon this reason to excuse the liberty which he has ventured to take in addressing himself directly to Your Majesty on a subject in which are involved not only vital interests of the government which he represents, but very grave and delicate personal responsibilities for himself. The Emperor, who by this time had probably been made to see the indiscretion of his irregular relations with the Confederate envoy, handed this note to Monsieur Dryan de la Hoise, who at once sent for Mr. Slidell. He seemed at first, says Mr. Slidell, to take a rather high tone, saying that what had passed with the Emperor was confidential, that France could not be forced into a war by indirection, that when prepared to act it would be openly, and that peace with the North should not be jeopardized on an accessory and unimportant point, such as the building of one or two vessels, that France was bound by the declaration of neutrality. Mr. Slidell, who was not disposed to rest silently under the imputation of intrusion upon the Emperor, then gave the minister a detailed history of the affair, showing him that the idea originated with the Emperor, and was carried out not only with his knowledge and approbation, but at his invitation, that it was so far confidential that it was to be communicated only to a few necessary persons, but that this could not deprive him of the right of invoking, as he did, an inheritance to promises which had been given long after the declaration of neutrality. The interview ended more amicably than it had begun, Monsieur Droyen de la Hoye expressing his sympathy with the South, and his regret that on account of the opposition of England they could not take more efficacious steps to assist the Confederacy. It was not long, however, before the apprehensions of Mr. Slidell and Captain Bullock, Confederate naval agent in Europe, were shown to have been well-founded. Monsieur Vaurouz, deputy of Nantes, who had been employed in company with Monsieur Armand to build two corvettes, came hurriedly to Paris in November when the rams were three-fifths finished, and the corvettes almost ready for sea, to inform the Confederate emissaries that one of his confidential clerks had disappeared and had carried off the letters and papers pertaining to this business. They all took it for granted that these compromising documents would soon fall into the hands of the United States legation which proved to be the case, 
and when mr dayton presented this damaging evidence to the ministry of foreign affairs both m droyen de la hoy and his colleague of the marine were properly shocked and surprised the minister of the united states received the most satisfactory assurances and the work on the ships went steadily on neither captain bullock nor mr slidell imagined that this discovery would put an end to their enterprise the former wrote to mr mallory the french government has only thus become aware of a transaction it was perfectly well informed of before indeed i may say that the attempt to build ships in france was undertaken at the instigation of the imperial government itself and it was of course impossible at first for mr slidell to believe that the repeated assurances he had received from the most august personage in the empire were to go for nothing simply because a clerk had run away with some letters the minister of marine had expressly authorized by an official document not only the construction of the four corvettes but their arming with twelve or fourteen guns each canon de tente even when the order was given that the vessels should not leave the ports of france but must be sold to other parties mr slidell still imagined that some trick would be devised by which they could go to sea so late as the sixteenth of february eighteen sixty four mr slidell writing to his government that the ministry of marine had informed him that the sailing of the vessels would be an act of open hostility to the united states did not yet believe in the full extent of the disaster which had overtaken him he admits the necessity of the nominal sale but still trusts to the chapter of accidents and the friendship of the emperor and proposes to go on and complete the ships he cannot conceive that the government means unkindly to him the contract for the corvettes he says was concluded only after the official consent to their armament and sailing was given by the minister of marine and this was given on the representation that they were intended for commercial purposes although their real character and destination were fully known to him he however reluctantly signing the order in obedience to superior authority it was agreed between armand and captain bullock that the sale of the corvette should be purely fictitious and that the negotiations in respect to the ram should be kept in such a state that the confederates might get possession of them again if there should be any change in the policy of the emperor's government trusting that this arrangement would be carried out captain bullock went to liverpool where on the ninth of june he received a letter from armand informing him that he had sold both the rams and the corvettes to governments of the north of europe in obedience to the imperative orders of his government he said he could not write particulars but his messenger gave this verbal explanation Monsieur armand had obtained his promised interview with the emperor who rated him severely threatened imprisonment ordered him to sell the ships at once bona fide and that if this was not done he would have them seized and taken to rochefort a similar order was sent to Monsieur vaurouz at nantes from the minister of marine written says captain bullock in a style of virtuous indignation specifying the general arrangements of the ships as proving their warlike character and dogmatically pronounces the one to which he especially refers un veritable corvette de guerre even after this wreck of his hopes after the minister of marine in an interview with mr slidell had informed him that he had kept his eyes shut as long as he could and that he had assisted him in every way possible but that now he had been ordered to turn over matters connected with the confederate navy to the minister of foreign affairs mr slidell was still able to believe that the emperor had been true to him 
i am sure he said that the builders were never forced to sell them to third parties and that no pressure for that object was ever exercised toward them by the government the builder of the bordeaux ships did as i was informed make assertions to that effect but i am fully convinced that they were pure fictions gotten up to subserve his own views the other emissaries did not share in this rosy view of the imperial friendship mason wrote we have been utterly duped by that power and worse captain bullock calls it a case of simple deception and gives as the reason why the government at richmond always refrained from making these transactions public that the effect would have been to alienate the sympathies of the imperial government which mr slidell was assured were still with the south it is evident that the emperor had changed his mind in regard to the comparative desirability of the friendship of the united states and the confederacy the steady progress of the union arms had at last caused even napoleon the third to modify his sanguine hopes of the downfall of the american republic he had no desire to commit himself further in the path that became every day hedged round with new difficulties and he availed himself probably without reluctance of the opportunity afforded by the energetic action of mr dayton to free himself from the entanglement with mr slidell End of chapter 10